okay, okay, we fixed that bottleneck, and then, oh, there's another one, right, and another spot, right? And so it wasn't always the same problem, but it was these growth problems, which are, you know, they call them good problems, and they are, they are good problems to have, but, but they're still problems, right? Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tiny DevOps Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. Uh, on this show, we like to focus on DevOps for small teams, um, thus the name Tiny. And today I'm excited to have a uh, special guest, Ben Curtis today, who has been working with Honey Badger for a while uh, on a small team there. And he's going to tell us uh, his story about uh, basically incident response and on-call rotations and that sort of those sorts of challenges on his small team. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, Maybe you can give us. Uh, maybe you can start by giving us a little bit of background about you and your time at Honey Badger and, and what that's been like. Sure. Wow. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So, Honey Badger, for those that aren't familiar, is a monitoring service for web developers. So we uh, monitor exceptions and uptime and and cron jobs. And uh, my role at Honey Badger as one of the co-founders since the beginning, I've I've been responsible for uh, keeping the the lights blinking happily. That's uh, that's what I'd like to do. Uh, and in the in the early days, that went those uh, lights on actual servers, and, and these days it's virtual lights on virtual instances. But uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoy building uh, fun tech solutions and uh, dealing with the upside, and uh, that's uh, kind of what keeps me going every day. Really good. So, how long have you been with Honey Badger then? Since the beginning, right? Yeah, since the beginning. So we launched about nine years ago. Okay. And when you started. I don't know. Was it just you and, and a small set of, of people? What, what did it like, look like, say, for the first year? Yeah. So for the first, uh, well, several years, there were just three co-founders. Uh, so we had Star and Josh and me. And uh, we're all uh, Ruby on Rails developers by background. And uh, we'd worked together before doing various kinds of freelancing projects. And uh, we all just dove in and started writing whatever code needed to be written. And uh, to me, fell all the responsibilities for getting the servers set up and get, uh, handling all the ops stuff. And so in the early days, it was uh, really just uh, one server. We, we started uh, at a leased facility uh, where we just leased a server. And uh, I remember, was, I think it was about 75 bucks a month. And we, we weren't sure that the, the startup was actually going to work, right? We didn't, we weren't sure that people were actually going to, you know, pay for it. And so we didn't want to get all invested early on and in, in having uh, a bunch of resources. So we figured, well, we could put one server out there and put the web app, put the database, put the, you know, the Redis, all of it, all of it on one thing. And that, that worked great for, uh, for quite a while, actually. When did it stop working great? <laughs> what, well, what changed? <laughs> well, over time, we, we actually found out that the, product would work, that the business would work, that people would actually want to pay money for us. Um, and so, of course, you know, we got more customers, we got more traffic, and we started building out uh, our, our servers. So we uh, first step was to add a, a dedicated database server. So we got another, you know, leased instance from the same company, and uh, we put moved move Postgres over there. And, uh, and then as time went on, you know, we got more and more. Actually, Early on, the f the first iteration of the product, like we didn't even have a queue. Like uh, errors would come into our API, and we would just write them straight to Postgres. And uh, after a while, Postgres just couldn't keep up with the write traffic, and so we we introduced a queue. So we started using a Sidekick, and uh, that uses Redis as its store. And so then we had uh, 
we added a couple servers for doing Redis stuff. And so that basically we had a, a nice three-tier, you know, your typical three-tier architecture at that point. We had our web application servers. We had our database servers, you know, and uh, everything was going fine for quite a while. That lasted us uh, a good while. And, you know, we would, we would spin up new servers as the load increased. But then at, at some point, it just got to a point where um, our hosting facility couldn't keep up with our needs. So we, we had, uh, it wasn't a matter of hardware, like we could get hardware whenever we wanted, but the, the networking was actually becoming the problem. Uh, we would just have these intermittent outages and, you know, we would open up tickets with the support staff. And even though they had a 24 hour on hands, you know, kind of thing, it's still, there were times when the response rate wasn't great. Maybe an hour they get back to us. And, uh, it just became an issue where we couldn't rely on their network to stay up enough for us because we, you know, we can't go down, uh, people who are having a bad day with their application, they're sending us a bunch of errors right that we need to be able to track that and uh, downtime just doesn't doesn't work well for us and so we eventually had to move from that facility and we decided at that point to move to amazon uh, the primary reason being that you know we had over provisioned uh, because you know you, you have to handle bursts of traffic right and so we had more than we needed but we wanted to get to a point where we could scale up and not have to over provision. And so we, we figured that uh, Amazon, you know, with auto scaling groups and that sort of stuff would be a great solution for us. And we figured if anybody, they would know how to make sure the network worked. <laughs> so what was the time frame then that you switched uh, to Amazon? So we switched to Amazon about early 2017. So we launched uh, mid 2012. So we, we got about, you know, four years of uh, time out of that lease facility. And uh, just to sort of put the time frame into perspective, uh, what does your team look like now? How many of you are there uh, and, and are you still on Amazon? Yeah, so we, we still have the three co-founders. We've added uh, a marketing person and another developer. So now we're up to a grand total of five. And uh, that surprises people a lot of times because we, we, we tend to punch above our weight, I guess. We, we, you know, we compete with uh, some big providers uh, like Rollbar and Sentry. Uh, and we do it with with uh, many many fewer employees than than they have, <laughs> uh, and we are still on Amazon to this day. So we're still in U.S. East one, and uh, we have a few more instances now than we we did back in 2017, and we have a lot more uh, automation in place than we did in 2017, as we've learned lessons along the way. Uh, but yeah, it's been it's been great. We've been happy with with Amazon. The only the only real snag for us with Amazon is just uh, we spend too much money on them, <laughs> uh, but they provide a good service. So we're happy yeah. to, to do that. So uh, w one question that just jumps to mind, you, you say that you, uh, it, maybe it's surprising how few people you have mm -hmm. do doing this work. Does mm -hmm. that mean you're overworked? Uh, or how do you manage that? So the way that we've managed that as, and I think key for your listeners is that we've tried to minimize the amount of work we have to do, right? We, we don't want to be babysitting servers. Uh, we don't want to have uh, human intervention as much as possible. And so we've spent a whole lot of time on automating our systems. So anytime there's a problem, uh, that caught, that requires a human intervention, then we, we do a postmortem where we analyze what, you know, what happened there, uh, document the issues that happened and then. Uh, try to create some automation around making sure that a human doesn't have to get involved in that kind of problem again. And so uh, as we've done that, you know, many, many, many times with all the issues that have popped up with the years, uh, now we can, we can sit back and we can see alerts coming in and then we can see, you know, 
uh, deploy messages for instances being spun up, for example, to handle maybe too much of a backlog or you know one issue or, or another. Uh, and so the automation is really the key, like being able to have robots doing the work so that we don't have to hire more humans to do it. And uh, I, I, I think I know the answer to this, but has it always been that way? I, I'm, <laughs> obviously, you had to build that automation, but right. what, what did that story look like? Uh, well, you know, so AWS did exist back when we launched Honey Badger back in 2012, and we, we chose not to go with Amazon when we first launched because we didn't want to take the time to really uh, build a resilient system according to Amazon's requirements. Like, for example, if you're running an EC2 instance, uh, there's no guarantee that instance is going to stay up, right? I mean, Amazon tells you, be prepared, right? The instance could be terminated for whatever reason, whatever time. And you've got to be able to handle that. And uh, in, the, in the early days, we didn't have the time to build the, the automation to handle that, like having an auto-scaling group that would automatically spin up an instance and automatically get the code that it needs, and et cetera, et cetera. We knew we had to depend on the old school way of just, you know, hoping the server doesn't die, right? So we have a long-lived server. It runs, it runs, it runs, and, and everything's fine. Um, so yeah, in the early days, we just uh, we just deployed our stuff, you know, uh, like sometimes manually. Like we would have a if we had a tweak to our nginx config, let's say for our web server, and then we would just hop on the production web servers and edit that file, you know, and reload the service. Uh, we used Capistrano to deploy our code, you know, our, our web app. Um, but automation really wasn't there, and over time, we we of course realized as we as we you know, had to launch server number two and then servers three and four and then so on. It's like, oh, we really need a system to be able to, to replicate our config. And so we, we leaned on Ansible, which has been a huge benefit to us. Love it. Uh, and that got us to a point where we could, you know, get a bare server from our provider and then within a few minutes have it provisioned for whatever role. And then, uh, you know, as we moved to Amazon, we realized, okay, now we got to be able to handle... Um, uh, server going away, an instance going away at any time. So that means every role has to have an auto-scaling group that has some sort of automated provisioning. So we would, what we ended up doing was building some AMIs, some Amazon machine images, kind of like a golden master, if you're old school. And uh, those AMIs are built using Ansible. So we provision, let's say it's going to be a web server. So we provision Nginx and, and the Ruby app, etc. And then when that AMI becomes part of an auto-scaling group, it has a configuration that says, tells it how to go and pull down the latest code and, and start running. So it basically can boot and go, right? There doesn't have to be a human involved in, in spinning up that instance. So yeah, in the early days, there was zero automation. Uh, and then we moved to uh, Ansible to help us uh, repeat our, our configuration in a, in a repeatable way. And then use that as we moved to Amazon to build out our auto-scaling groups. As the primary or perhaps only uh, infrastructure person at Honey Badger, are you able to take holidays? <laughs> uh, so as the only infrastructure person for the first several years, no, I wasn't actually able to take holidays. I mean, I could get away from the computer, but uh, I remember vividly, like if I ever, I did go to conferences, I did travel. Uh, and so I would just, uh, for the <laughs> For the plane ride, I would just knock on wood and hope that nothing happened during those few hours, right? But uh, while I was at the conference, like I always had my laptop with me. Uh, so, and and there were conferences where I would miss a session or in the middle of a session, just like all of a sudden have to respond to an issue and whip out the laptop and get to work, right? So that was not fun. Yeah, I, I uh, <laughs> you know, if I were to go to advise myself, uh, you know, from nine years ago, uh, I would I might give myself some advice about. 
uh, maybe spending more money on <laughs> automation ahead of time, you know, earlier on so that I wouldn't have as many years of doing that. But, uh, but these days, uh, since we have so few incidents, uh, yeah, I get to take vacations now. Um, I remember, I guess it was probably about not, not too long after the Amazon transition when I took my first like extended multiple day vacation and, uh, even didn't even take the laptop, you know? Uh, I still have my phone with me so that I could walk somebody else through, you know, <laughs> uh, my, my co-founders are great in that they're, they're technical, they can understand stuff. Uh, and so I can, you know, push comes to shove, I can call them and say, hey, you know, do this, run that, you know, kind of stuff. We do, we do have playbooks. So when, when there are things that go wrong, we, of course, have some documentation say, okay, you know, check this thing and check that thing. And there was one, I remember vividly, this one July 4th uh, holiday, I actually decided, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this day off. And, uh, you know, Josh, Josh was on call that day and, and poor Josh, of course, there was an issue on, on July 4th, like at 10 in the morning or something. And, uh, he and I were, you know, texting back and forth and he was, you know, figuring, you know, re reading the run books and seeing where there were gaps, of course. And, uh, so yeah, so these days I get to take, um, some good vacations, but, uh, in the early days, yeah, I was pretty much tied to the servers. I think, I think the, the key on, on the vacation thing, if, if you don't have a, if you haven't had the chance yet to write the automation and, and maybe if you had, like, if you know, there are things that can break or that have broken in the past and you, you have documented them. I think having great playbooks is, is the next step you want to get to, to be able to take that vacation, you know, to, to be able to have somebody, uh, who can, maybe it's a co-founder, maybe it's an employee, maybe it's just a friend. I have another entrepreneur friend that also runs a, a web app business and he's doing it basically solo. And, uh, when, when COVID hit, uh, he, you know, started to make some plans like, well, if I end up in the hospital, uh, who's going to take care of this, you know, if something goes wrong. And so he and I have been friends for a long time. And so he asked if I would, you know, dive in and I said, sure, I was happy to do that on an emergency scenario. But you know, what he had done was like, okay, if, if this happens, then go look, you know, X, Y, and Z. Right. And if that happens then go look at A, B, and C, like he had these great, these great run books and, you know, he and I sat down initially and just had like a one or two hour orientation kind of thing for me. So I could make sure I could SSH into the right boxes, you know, and that I could see the things I needed to see. So I think if, if you're in that situation where you're that solo or, or maybe the only person responsible for, for ops, uh, I think, uh, as you do work, as you do a thing, maybe you upgrade a package, you know, the, the, the typical day-to-day -day stuff that you do or the problems you you deal with. If you write step-by-step -step things down that you did, then you can hand that to someone else and say, Hey, here's, here's what you do when you encounter this problem. And that, that helps quite a lot. Did you ever have, I, I don't know, this, this is kind of an off the wall question, but did you ever sort of have that adrenaline high when, when things were crashing and, and you were, you, you were required to step out of that conference, uh, to do something? Did it make you feel important? Uh, <laughs> sort of like a wild west cowboy coder guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> That question went a different direction than I was expecting. Uh, so <laughs> have, have I felt that anxiety, that stress? Yes, yes, terribly so. Um, but did I feel important? No, I did not feel important. I felt like the whole business was going to fail and it was all my fault. <laughs> I felt like the, the, the biggest idiot in the world and I felt like anybody else could figure out this problem in five minutes. Why is it taking me five hours? Um, and if I don't fix this, then I have to go find a real job. You know, <laughs> Th those are the kind of feelings when I was, and so you might then say, well, when you, when you were done, when you actually fixed it, did you feel important? 
no, no, I still, (laughs) I still felt like, oh, glad I dodged that bullet. Like, and when's the next one Uh going to happen? You know, (laughs) like, uh, yeah, like, oh, somehow amazingly did not destroy the business today. Am I going to destroy the business tomorrow? You know, so I don't know, maybe that speaks to uh, some kind of personality quirk of mine, but (laughs) I never felt important. I don't know. I I, I don't know. The first thing that comes to my mind is that it speaks to you as a co-owner of the business. Mm rather than an employee who might get kudos from the boss when they fix something, if you know what I mean. Right, right. Uh, Some people, I think, do get sort of an emotional high when when they're on on the button trying to fix something. Yeah. But maybe it's not their butt on the line when that happens. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can see that might be a difference, right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, one of your other co-founders uh, being on call that week. How did you handle or how, how did you first set up this on-call rotation and how did you balance that between the three of you and I suppose more than that now? Yeah, yeah. So initially it was it was ad hoc. It was, you know, uh, we, we use Slack for everything because we're 100% remote. And so it was, you know, hop on Slack and say, hey, I, I want to take off tomorrow. Who can who can be around, you know, to to watch the stuff basically. And uh, we would all get alerts. So, you know, if, if there was a critical thing, then all of our uh, cell phones would go off and then they would just expect that I would handle it. Uh, and then we would hop onto Slack. And if I didn't handle it, then one of them would jump in. Eventually we ended up uh, moving to pager duty, which is fantastic uh, just to be able to have rotation. Uh, so at, at, when, when I felt comfortable that, uh, we had enough documentation in place that anybody could handle most issues. Then we set up this rotation in PagerDuty where we just we rotate. Each of us takes a week, uh, Monday to Monday, and uh, I, we actually have two levels. So there's the first level is whoever has you know the rotation for the week, and then the second level is me. <laughs> so I'm I'm like the default escalation. So if if a, if a PagerDuty so you can set up rules for like how long an, an issue can go out you know before you know escalate to whatever. So. Our rules are, you know, that whoever's on call gets the first notice. If it goes unacknowledged for 30 minutes, then it escalates to the second level, which is, which is me all the time. And, uh, that's worked out really well. Like, uh, initially, like everyone gets paged and then to a point where, okay, now only one person gets paged. Uh, that, that's, that was, that was like the best quality of life improvement (laughs) because I could then go and do a thing for a few hours and not have to worry about, you know, making sure my phone had a reception or whatever. I knew someone else would at least take a look at it. Right. And, and maybe, uh, maybe I'd have to be called in on something, but, uh, but more often than not, and someone else was going to be talking about it and handling it before I even had to look at it. How often do you get uh, alerts these days? Uh, so we have, so as far as pager duty alerts, where someone might get woken up at 4am, that happens very, very rarely maybe once every six months, maybe once a year, something like that. Uh, but we do have an alerts channel in Slack where there are, I guess, lower level alerts, non-urgent alerts, things that, you know, if they persist, you probably need to do something, but, uh, it's just kind of an early warning system. So we'll see alerts in there, mm, you know, a couple times a week, uh, just depending. So those, those kind of alerts would be, for example, like our main thing is, you know, we're processing all these jobs, these incoming API requests. Uh, so we have a queue and that queue of course can get backlogged if there was some sort of slowdown in processing. So our, our two primary alerts that we, we keep an eye on very closely are the, the depth of the queue, how many jobs are there outstanding 
and uh, also the latency. Like, what, how long has the oldest job been in the queue? And so early on, in the early years, like, uh, if, that, if that queue depth, let's say, went above 1,000 or whatever the number was, then it would send a page and everyone's like, okay, drop everything and go look and see what's happening because we might have to spin up a new server, right? Uh, these days, like we have CloudWatch alarms that are watching those metrics. And so if the count goes high or if the latency goes too high, then, you know, a new instance just gets spun up and it does its job and it'll just automatically resolve itself. So, uh, over time we had to bump up that number. So maybe it was a thousand and then 10,000 and whatever the number is today. Uh, and then also like the, the, how, how closely we had to worry about it. So, you know, back a few years ago, like if we saw that, that latency number hit the alarm in, in Slack, we'd like, oh, oh, it's time to take a look, right? Um, but now it's like, eh, it, it'll be fine, right? And if it goes another 20 minutes, then we might have to take a look. But, you know, we'll get an alert that, A, the latency is up, and then we'll get an alert, oh, latency is fine now, you know? So um, so once, once you start getting these runbooks in place and you have an idea of how your system behaves, you start to realize, okay, well, this is an early indicator of what a problem could become a problem, right? In our case, the latency or the depth of the queue. So you start building, you know, alarms around those metrics. Like, you, well, first you have to metric, you have to have metrics for those things, right? And then you build alarms around those metrics, and then hopefully you can have some sort of automation that responds to those alarms. And that's that's the progression that we've made at Honey Badger. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what kind of uh, volume of alerts were you getting, say, in the first year or two? I'm assuming it was much higher. Yeah, it, it was. And the funny thing is, like, we had initially planned on running Honey Badger as, as a side business. Like, the, we had uh, Star and I worked for a startup in Seattle, and so we had a, a nice job that we enjoyed, and we didn't really want to leave it. But we found that um, we'd add a new customer. All of a sudden, we had a bunch of new volume, and like uh, it was eleven in the morning, and it's like we see this alarm, like oh, the sidekick queue is crazy, and we have to stop everything we're doing with our job and go and do this side thing, right? And so, after a while, it just became untenable. We couldn't, you know, in good in good conscience, couldn't have a job and have this thing that's always interrupting us. Um, so in the early days, yeah, it was like it was crazy, and like you know, uh, get a new customer and. Of course, we weren't watching the customers sign up. We were doing our work at our at our regular job, and then all of a sudden, alerts because like all this new traffic, and we have to go and you know handle that. Uh, so you know, daily we we would see, you know, because one thing would break or another, right? So maybe so today it might be in the early early days, like we're we're learning what the process was for dealing with stuff. We're learning where things can break, and so you know, it might be the queue. Okay, okay, we fixed that bottleneck, and then oh, there's another one, right, and another spot, right, and so it wasn't always the same problem, but it was these growth problems that are, you know, they call them good problems, and they are, they are good problems to have, but but they're still problems, right? <laughs> How did you learn to manage this completely, basically uncharted territory that you're you're facing new problems every day or every week or every customer? Uh, did you learn any tricks to help with this, or or was it just fly by the seat of your pants? Uh, you know. I think every system is different, right? And and in our case, there were certain we could, we could kind of anticipate uh, where a slowdown would happen based on past uh, alerts. So one in the early days, one issue that was that kept we kept hitting was these slowdowns in queries uh, in, in in Postgres because you know if you if you dealt with a lot of data, you know that sometimes you just get to a you get to a tipping point in your database where like you know. Uh, X thousand rows is fine, but you know, 
X thousand, Y thousand rows is not fine, right? And, and you go in and add an index and maybe that speeds it up or you find some other, you know, denormalized solution or whatever it is. And so we would, we would hit that problem repeatedly and uh, as we hit these various levels of data. And it just became, we got kind of a gut feel, I guess, for, oh, okay, it, it, the system is doing this. We, we've seen this kind of behavior in the past. And so it's likely and this kind of problem. And so let's go look at the slow queries and see what the slow queries look like. And it's like, oh, okay, there's a, there's a, a different kind of query now that's showing up as slow. And, and now we have an idea of how to go and, and fix that thing. So I think it just takes experience to get a feel for how your system behaves. And over time you do kind of see these patterns and, and again, it helps if you're documenting <laughs> as you're fixing stuff. Right. And then you can see, Oh yeah, we did this and we did this and we did it again. Um, and I had experience before with like databases in particular. And so I, I knew things like, Oh, you add an index and all of a sudden magic can happen. Right. The things can automatically be performant. You know, it's not quite that easy, but uh, it feels that way when you, when you finally get it and you're like, yes. And now everything's working again. Um, you know, so I think once you have an idea of how your different components behave, then you can kind of get a feel for, Oh, th this, this part of the system is probably where the, the problem is. So you, you mentioned just again, uh, and you mentioned it before, uh, documentation. Uh, I'm, I'd like to hear a little about how you handle an incident. You mentioned your postmortem process. Mm -hmm. uh, what what has that come to look like these days? So if if you were to have an incident tomorrow, how would you handle that? Yeah. So we had an incident a few hours ago. Actually, that was caused by a human. Okay. <laughs> it was caused by me. Oh. <laughs> uh, and and these days, a lot of our incidents that we had, you know, uh, of the incidents that we have, I would say a, a good percentage of them are human caused, like some sort of deployment, right? A new code change or a new configuration goes out in production. It's like, oh, there's an unintended side effect. Um, so the the process. So once, so once the problem is fixed. So well, I guess even during the problem. A problem arises, alerts are going off. Uh, everyone who's available is in Slack, like trying to help out. And there's, there's typically one person, typically me, who's the lead and trying to diagnose the problem. And then, you know, everyone there is, is basically watching the alerts and seeing uh, if, if they can think of anything to do. And if not, waiting for direction from the lead. Uh, and so there's a lot of interaction happening on Slack. And then, so hopefully by the end of the incident, by the time we've discovered the problem and deployed a fix or, you know, worked around whatever, hopefully like everyone in the, uh, who's somewhat interested has somewhat idea of what happened, how it happened and, and what the resolution was because they've been in Slack. They've been following along as the, as the incident has progressed. So we got that kind of situation already. And then after the incident's resolved, usually the next day, because you got to give yourself some time to come down from that, right? It's it's a, it's an anxiety-inducing experience. You got a lot of adrenaline going on, you know. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've I've had days problems are like, okay, this is it. The business is done. I've I've sunk the whole thing, right? Because I can't figure out how to fix this, right? Um, but anyway, so we give ourselves a little bit of time, uh, and then the next day, write up a postmortem. Uh, it, usually in in Basecamp is where we keep our our long uh, lived documentation. So it'll be, um, you know, here's the, and it, it's pretty informal. It's like, okay, here's where we were, Here, here's what caused, you know, here's the change that happened or, you know, the incident or whatever the, the trigger was, uh, here's the research that we did, uh, here's the, the things that we tried and here's the thing that eventually worked. And then the most important part of the postmortem is, uh, then what's the plan 
for avoiding this kind of incident in the future. So uh, it'll be, it might be things like, well, uh, there was a new, this is a new kind of thing that we hadn't really monitored before. So we need to add uh, a metric for this particular behavior. Uh, and then if we have a metric, then we should have an alarm based on this threshold. And then with that alarm, we should take this action. So we'll just, we'll just write that plan, whatever the plan might be for avoiding this incident in the future. Maybe if it was a, if it was a bad upgrade, like a bad code push, maybe the the resolution plan is, okay, we had some more review time or we, we do this other kind of steps in our staging environment or, you know, whatever. Uh, so we discussed that plan in the Basecamp thread. And once we, once we agree that there's a good plan for moving ahead, then we make those changes, whether it's a, an Ansible change or a Terraform change, because Terraform is where we manage our uh, AWS resources. Or maybe it's a, just a process change. So wh whatever that change is, then we, we implement that in a, you know, one of our repos as a PR or uh, just as a, a new runbook. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty informal process. Like there's not, you know, there's not like an actual meeting and, you know, kind of thing. It's, we do believe though, in the, in the no blame kind of situation, I, you're probably familiar with this mm -hmm. where, you know, we don't say, yeah. Oh, it was, it was such and such as fault for doing that thing. It's like, no, nah, you know, the, the fault was that something bad happened and we just need to fix that thing. Right. It's, it's like, it's, it's really not a big deal. If someone, you know, pushes some bad code, what, what should have happened was that review should have caught that. Right. Okay. So let's be better at reviews or, you know, if there was a, a new service that we put out there, we didn't have enough monitoring in place. It's like, okay, well let's make a plan for our next launch that when we have a new thing like this, then we think about better the, you know, the metrics that we need to measure and the alarms we need to have in place and that sort of thing. So looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? Uh, or that you would have changed over the last eight, nine years, uh, if you had the chance? Uh, you know, I, I've thought about that a few times. Uh, one, one thing that I, I might have done differently, although I'm not a hundred percent sure I've, I've thought a number of times, maybe we just should have started on AWS with all the automation work up front. That would have made my life a lot easier for the first few years. At the same time, that would have delayed our launch by several months, uh, just because it did take a lot of work to get exactly what I wanted. And, and maybe I'm just too picky. I don't know, but that that's the, the number one thing that I keep coming back to. It's like, oh, if I would have started with all the automation framework in place, I mean, obviously we still would have had lessons to learn and things to change over time. But if we would have been there from the get go, then we might've been in a better starting point to be able to handle some of those early issues, you know, more gracefully. Looking back, uh, if you had taken the approach of building the automation first, would it have been motivating considering that you had a day job and I'm assuming you were working nights and weekends and you would not have had customers, would, would you have been able to maintain the momentum and motivation to build that automation under those circumstances? Or was that, that pressure required uh, to, to get, get it done? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. I, I, you know, there were three of us, we weren't funded. Like you said, it was nights and weekends. Um, so star was working mostly on the front end code. I, uh, Josh was working on our client code, like working with client libraries to send us data. And so my job, not only was ops, but also to build the back end code. So all the processing pipeline, right? So if I've been spending all my time on the ops stuff, then we wouldn't have a back end <laughs> for handling. You know, so the product would have been delayed by months. I'm sure of it. And yeah, that probably would have been a premature optimization, probably not worth it. Um, so, so maybe the real answer that should have done it sooner, but not straight from the start. I don't know. It was, it was, it was good experience though. Um, and 
by the time we did the migration to AWS, I felt really comfortable because I had had many months to practice uh, doing a cutover and doing you know all the things. So, how do you feel now about the way things are with regard to operation to Honey Badger? Yeah, I, f I feel it's it's a world it's a world better than it used to be. Uh, I'm much more relaxed. <laughs> I'm able to take a vacation when I want. Uh, I can I like to ride my bike on the trails nearby, and so I can go for an afternoon bike ride for several hours and not have to be concerned that all of a sudden I have to go back early, right? Uh, yeah, it's it's night and day, really. So these days I'm I'm excited uh, to be working on that kind of stuff because it just it just works. Uh, most 99% of the time. And when we do have a problem, it's, there's a clear path to how we can not have that problem again. We have a lot of the infrastructure in place to be able to say, okay, well, we can just add this kind of thing or split it this way, you know? Uh, so yeah, it, it feels a lot better. So I guess the good, the good news is like the, the early period was painful, but the current day, the past several years have been very unpainful. So uh, I guess there's hope for anyone who's in the painful stage. Like, yes, you can, you can get past that point. <laughs> what does the future look like? What, what kinds of uh, optimizations do you hope to make in the next six to 12 months? I'd love to find magic ways to get our AWS bill cut. <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't. I, I've been thinking about it for years now, and I don't have a good solution yet. But, um, you know, maybe they'll come up with some some uh, great cost cutting measures on their end and that'll help us. I don't know. But, uh, no, I think one of the, one of the things that we want to do is we want to, uh, have a more, uh, well, one thing we really want to do is deploy, be able to deploy a stack to other regions easily. So to be able to have like region to region failover, uh, it's like today, if us East one went away, well, I mean, half the internet would be dead. Right. But, uh, so would we. <laughs> uh, so we don't currently have like an automated system to switch over to another region. We can manually recover. Uh, we have a, we have a playbook for that. Uh, we have a plan for that. But we can't just like flip a switch, uh, which would be awesome. So that's that's one thing we're working on is getting our Terraform. Like we still have a few places in our AWS configuration where it was done in the console, you know, and it's not quite in code yet. And so one of the efforts that we're doing this year is. Uh, putting all that in Terraform, going through and creating a whole new stack and giving basically a push button deploy where we can say, okay, our region went away. Let's, let's do a manual recovery, but let's not have to push anything besides just one button, you know, Terraform apply or, or whatever it is. Right. So that's what we're working towards. And I think I will, I will sleep better at night at, with that. And that's, that's really how we guide the Alps work at Honey Badger. Like uh, every time we get to a peaceful place, then it's okay. What's, what's keeping Ben up at night? Like what's, what do I wake up worrying about? Like, Oh, if this happened overnight, that would be bad. Okay. How do we, how do we handle that kind of thing? And that's, and that's the next step for us. It's like, Hey, if the, if the region went away, that would be bad. How do we handle that? Really good. If, if any listeners are going through some of these same struggles, maybe they're co-founders, maybe they're just working at a small company. Do you have any resources you can recommend that could help them through this, uh, through this journey? Uh, I think, you know, preemptively reading up on things is good. Um, it's a great book. Well, it's kind of old now called Ship It, uh, published by O'Reilly. And that has some good, I mean, some of the stuff is outdated and does not apply, but it has, it has good uh, things to think about if you're, get, if you're new to the, the industry. 
Um, Google has a great book. Their systems reliability engineering book is fantastic. Although you have to like temper that with where you are on your life cycle as a company, because I mean, obviously it was written by people that have a lot of resources and a lot of things happening and, and probably you don't have that much happening. So, uh, you know, you have to filter out the stuff that doesn't really apply to you, but there's good, I think, insights in there and ways to think about things. Um, there, the great book, uh, the unicorn project is just kind of a fun read. Like, again, it gives you that, like, here's all the bad things that happen in big enterprises, right? Uh, but I think can give you some appreciation for maybe the smaller kinds of problems you do deal with. It kind of makes you feel better. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a fun, that's a fun narrative read. So you don't, you know, go into that thinking, okay, I got to learn some stuff today. No, it's just, it's kind of interesting. And you learn some stuff along the way. Um, and of course, Stack Overflow is a great place to be, right? <laughs> anytime, anytime you have an error. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know. I think as far as resources go, you know, I think a lot of just my experience from playing with Linux for a long, long time just comes into play. Like I get a kind of a feel for how stuff works and like, oh, yeah, it's a file descriptor limit kind of problem, right? You, you just, you understand what that is when you play with it long enough. So I think probably the best thing to do is just play, like, uh, learn stuff. Like if you like, if you hear about Ansible and you're like, what the heck is that? Like, and then you learn what that is and you're like, oh, well, let me go try it. Let me go play with that, right? As opposed to just reading about it or reading what someone else did with it, go and set up an instance. You know, I think even today, one of the best ways I spend my time is I, I spin up a bare instance on EC2 and I play with stuff and I try things out. You know, I build a new Terraform thing to see how stuff works, right? And I, I build a new VPC and then I tear it down, you know, and I only spend like a five pennies on it, right? I think that is, I think more than, uh, spending time in, in communities like Reddit or Discourse or whatever, I think uh, spending time just playing with the technology and, and learning stuff that way is is time well spent. Ben, how can people get a t in touch with you? Well, feel free to ping me on Twitter. I'm Stimpy on Twitter, S-T-Y-M-P-Y. -Y. Uh, of course, people are welcome to reach out to me at email, ben at honey, honeybadger.io. Uh, and I do hang out um, on, on Reddit from time to time in the Ruby and the Rails subreddits, so I might answer a question here and there. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to answer you know DMs or, or mentions on Twitter. That's probably the best way. Okay, great. And uh, if anybody here is looking for some error monitoring and, and so on, uh, of course, Honey Badger is available. How do we find uh, the, the best option there? Yeah, if you're running a web app, you definitely want to check out honeybadger.io. That is the place where you can get the most awesome exception monitoring on the planet. Uh, it's really it's really focused towards developers. We want to have developers have a, a better day. Like we feel very strongly that our mission is to have great software for developers so that they can have a better experience with their work. And I think if you try Honey Badger and you, you see how it helps you deliver a better product and helps make your customers happy, I think you'll agree that uh, it's it's a great product for that. And Ben, before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to say? Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I, for all those who are dealing, you know, struggling with those heavy ops burdens and are on their shoulders alone, I, I feel your pain. And uh, do feel free to reach out to me anytime if you need some comm commiseration. Okay. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks, thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you guys next time. This episode is copyright 2021 by Jonathan Hall, all rights reserved. Find me online at jhall.io. Theme music is performed by Riley Day.